Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Crisis Conversations from the Better Life Lab. Today, we're going to be talking about returning to work. The pandemic continues to uh, rage on, and yet there are states that have reached levels where they've decided to go into different phases of reopening. Businesses are talking about reopening. We've got some high-tech companies saying people can continue to work remotely if they choose for some time. On the other hand, there are essential workers who are saying that they still don't have the protective gear that they need. We're going to be talking about going back to work in the short term, but then also looking at what does this mean in the long term. So what I'd like to do is start off with a conversation that I had earlier this week with Kendra Goodenough. She is at Microsoft. She's an investor relations there. And she has some very interesting thoughts about the return to work. There will be those when people do start going back into the office that um, either because they uh, have access to childcare or they don't have children or whatever that situation is, it's easier to do that versus some, you know, myself maybe included in here where I have to stay home. I, I can't go in because schools aren't open. I'm unclear on, I guess, what that'll look like where all of a sudden people are back face-to-face and, you know, if I'm remote or others are remote, Will we miss out on those hallway conversations that naturally happen when people are in there? You know, will people remember that we're dialing in remotely? Don't forget to dial in when you start a meeting because, you know, I can't be in the office yet. And so it's kind of unclear yet, like how that'll play out. And if that empathy that people have developed as we've all been working remotely, if that'll continue and, you know, people remember that, you know, there are many of us still potentially working remotely once, once the office does open back up. So, Manar, let me go, let me first go to you, Manar Morales. She is president and CEO of the Diversity and Flexibility Alliance. So, Manar, you've been working with a number of firms um, as they transition from pre-COVID to dealing with working remotely. What are, what are you hearing from firms? What are companies and managers dealing with as they think about going back in the short term and then also in the long term? Yeah, I think Kendra raises a lot of really good points that a lot of the firms and the companies that we're working with are thinking about, which is that not everybody can return. And so I think you had that initial phase where everybody was working from home and it kind of leveled the playing field. So normally where people would be concerned on missing out when they were telecommuting. Uh, So as I think they're going back, they really do have to take a step back and look at what does the next normal look like? We're always cautioning our companies about languaging, right? So when they issue these memos and they say, we're all anxious to get back, I have to remind them that, first of all, who are you defining in that? Are you actually thinking about everybody? Did you survey? And to also remember that you have to think about that actually going back causes a lot of people to be anxious. And so being mindful of that when you start to think about how do you create this hybrid phase? And I think what Kendra raised is a lot what we caution a lot of our firms and our members about, which is you have to think about inclusion. We know that you're going to have to thin out conference rooms. And so I caution to say, if you have a meeting, a conference room, and you had 10 people, but now you can only fit four, who gets a seat at the table and who doesn't? That's an inclusion issue, right? Mm. So actually, everything should then be virtual, right? So even though you have an opportunity for people to go back in, and they're being very cautious about it. I, I don't think companies and firms that can continue, they were surprised at how well remote work worked, Mm. Um, for everybody. So they're not actually very eager to immediately jump back in. So I'm hearing from them to say, even as states reopen, we're taking it cautiously to say, 
we're going to, you know, phase it in. And we are advocating that it be reason neutral for a significant period of time, meaning don't even ask somebody why they want to go back because you shouldn't be the arbiter of whose reason is better than the others. In Mm. other words, because I'm taking care of my father, does that mean I'm better than the person who has anxiety about going to work or person who's taking care of children or whatever the issue is? You shouldn't be in a position to be the arbiter of who has a better reason to not be in. And then make sure that when you're having team meetings, when you're doing that, that you continue to do that virtually Mm -hmm. so that everybody is involved. Because people are going to put a lot of pressure on themselves, too, to feel like, am I missing out? And people from underrepresented backgrounds who already felt like perhaps when I'm in the office, I didn't feel seen. And now I'm Mm. concerned that I'm out of sight, out of mind. And so I'm putting pressure on myself to feel like I should go in in order not to miss out on opportunities. How you manage remote teams and how you do that in a hybrid environment also requires a level of training. I think all of those are issues that are important to think about as you're transitioning. And I'm always careful to say back to the office because people have been working really, really hard during this time. Right. It's real. You're right. It's not a back to work at all. It's a back to a different, you know, doing work in a different place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Although the the question that she brings up around childcare is something that is, you know, I've been hearing, I think we've all been hearing more and more about how on earth can you go back to uh, an office or a FaceTime setting when when childcare centers may not be open, when it's unclear what's going to happen at school? Does one go and one doesn't go? And then if you have to make that choice, who is that? And, and we, we do know from a lot of research that women tend to be the ones that step back. So now you've got researchers writing pieces uh, really all around the world saying, if you don't figure out childcare in this reopening section, you may set women's advances back 40 years. You know, how are you addressing that with the firms that you're working with? You can't ignore the fact that this issue exists, right? You can't expect people that are just going to shed and show up and pretend that they don't have child care responsibilities or elder care responsibilities during this time through no, no fault of their own. And so saying to organizations, you need to create a culture where people can step up and speak up and say, mm-hmm. this is my, and check in with them and say, this is what I'm experiencing. But don't assume just because somebody has childcare responsibilities that they want to be taken off of things, right? right. That they don't want to work because that also penalizes them. Right. And so it's about having the open conversation to ask them what's going on, what's on your plate, how can we help, what can you do? Because a lot of them are thinking, I can shift my hours or I'm available for this two hours and then I'm trading off with somebody and I'm on this shift and they're doing different shifts that they're working out or they're working into the weekend. So I think having open conversations, it's what's important and allowing people to speak up and feel comfortable that they're not going to be penalized if they speak up during this time is really incredibly important. Okay. Well, let me go to Richard now. Richard, you know, when we when we talk about people returning to do work in places other than home, you work at a restaurant, you weren't able to do work at home. Talk a little bit more from your perspective. You know, you you're with um, uh, Restaurant Opportunities Centers United. Um, You know, what is your pandemic experience been like? And what is going back to a restaurant like at this moment? Well, uh, the pandemic experience of being laid off has just been one of complete mystery. We, as restaurant workers, have been unsure what the business will be like when we come back, what are the circumstances we are coming back to, and what will the industry look like. There have been reports of closures of restaurants, loss of jobs, etc. As we come back now in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we are at 50% capacity in dining rooms. 
Uh, we have protocols uh, in place for safety protocols, but the safety protocols really only exist on the guest's behalf to make the uh, customers feel comfortable. We wear masks. We change our gloves after every interaction. The, uh, the customers are really only, they're asked to follow uh, uh, guidelines, but the guidelines are unenforceable. If they choose not to wear a mask when they get up from the table, uh, they don't have to. If, mm. they, if they choose to simply not wear a mask at all, they don't have to. We can uh, sort of, they can sit as long as they want in the dining room without being asked to move along and speed up their dinners. The only limits they have are party limits. They're not allowed to have a party greater than four in the bar area or a party greater than 10. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you were also talking, when we talked the other day, you were also saying that because restaurants are trying to limit the number of people there, there's also a lot of staff that aren't there. And so the people who have returned, like you, are actually now doing a whole lot more than you used to. And you're also doing it while you're earning the tipped minimum wage, which not a lot of people know is like, you know, a little more than $2 an hour. You basically rely on tips in order to just make a living wage, right? Right. So that, you know, it, what the, the pandemic has really done is really highlighted uh, even further the, uh, the interesting power dynamic in restaurants. We take all, uh, all of the precautions of staff uh, for the uh the customer to decide how much they want to pay us. Um, we are being asked to do a lot more work. Uh, I know in a lot of restaurants, including mine, uh, assistant staff like uh, busers, servers, assistants, bartenders have not been called back. Uh, my management is taking a 50% pay cut. We are being asked to do a lot more for a lot less money. And that's including having only 50% capacity. So we are making less than tick in general. Mm. So what are some of the issues that you really want to see change, not just in the short term, but, you know, when it comes to restaurant work in the long term? What are some of the things you all are fighting for? The most pressing issue because of the pandemic has been paid sick leave. We are mm -hmm. a large workforce that does not have access to paid sick leave. It's unfathomable, I think, to us to uh, ask people to return to work, especially those of us who handle your food, cook your food, serve your drinks to have to work sick. Yeah. So the choice is, you know, in my industry, if you don't show up, you don't get paid. And uh, most of us are going to choose to get paid <laughs> rather than take a day off because we're sick. Well, so let me go to you, Alex. So Alex um, is a fantastic writer. So he's written Rest. These books are back on my bookshelf there. And his latest one is Shorter. Work better, smarter, and less. Here's how. Um, Alex, you do a lot of of, uh, of work and thinking about work, where we are now, um, how we can work effectively, what are work systems that work in the future. As you've been watching kind of work systems, frankly, uh, really undergo huge disruption and in some cases really crumble in the pandemic, you know, what are you seeing uh, you know, in terms of where we are now, like, how is this going to change work in the future? And one of the things I'd love for you to talk about is you, you know, you talk about the four day work week, and everybody kind of cries and thinks, yeah, I'd love a four day work week. But we also live in a country where a lot of people can't even get a four day work week, or they're earning such little money that working four days a week is not going to not going to cut it for them. How do we address 
um, work hours across the board in this country. And so that was sort of a whole lot of a question. But <laughs> I want you to talk about the future of work and not just robots. I want you to talk about humans here. No, that's cool. Um, now, I think, you know, I think what we've seen over the last several months is, first off, COVID and the pandemic laying bare a whole bunch of sort of structural inequalities and problems that either sort of were kind of underneath the surface or that we knew about but but have become a lot more urgent, right? I think that the sort of, you know, the growing and designed precarity of labor that has made a few people really, really rich, and those yeah. people now are on their private islands instead of, or you know, where they're not exposed to COVID. Um, you know, and a large class of people who sort of struggle to sort of to find stable work and to make ends meet. The stubborn problems with keeping women in the workplace at a level commensurate with their male colleagues, um, particularly when they're having to, you know, sort of juggle work stuff, family stuff. And I think that COVID has, you know, has laid bare the disconnect between um, essential work and our support for it. And yeah. the fact that a good bit of that essential work has been sort of precaritized, to coin a phrase. You know, I think it's it's also made clear, I hope in a good way, for uh, the amount of work required to manage work and family and the enormous amount of emotional labor that people have to engage in in order to keep those two things separate. Yeah. Um, and how, you know, and sort of how sort of complicated and often fragile are the systems that that individuals have had to build in order to deal with those things, right? You know, as schools have closed, childcare centers have closed, you know, I don't need to rehearse for sort of anybody the amount of work that people have had to put into, you know, both working from home and, you know, being teachers and pediatricians, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and I think, but, you know, I think also that it has revealed the degree to which companies and organizations can actually change really quickly when they need to. You know, the number of managers who said, you know, who before this would have said, work from home is a hill I will die on, um, have discovered that, you know, in fact, the earth will not crash into the sun, if they're, you know, if they, you know, if they can't see their people in the office 10 hours a day. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the, you know, the hopeful thing there is that, you know, it's revealed that, all kinds of things that we thought were impossible in in the world of work can be changed. And mm -hmm. I think one of the other things that's laid bare is the degree to which our workplaces actually often are super spreaders. I mean, open offices that viruses love with all the recirculated air and these common surfaces. We got to figure out how to deal with all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, Alex, um, this whole idea about shorter work hours or the four-day work week, is that even a possibility? And how would that work for, you know, for someone like, like Richard, who right now is earning a little over the two, than two bucks an hour, you know? Um, how is that going to work across the board? And what do you, what do you see happening? So, you know, first off, I've, you know, I've looked at more than 100 companies that have done this, you know, ranging from software and advertising firms, you know, kind of professional services to restaurants and nursing homes. And so, you know, I think it is something that is doable across a far wider range of industries than we think. And fundamentally, the reason that it's possible is that technology over the last 30 years has made you know, made possible enormous increases in productivity that have been buried under 
a kind of rubble of multitasking and outdated management and overly long meetings, et cetera. Mm. And once you clear that stuff away, as some companies have done during this emergency, you recognize that actually it's already possible to do five days work in four without cutting people's salaries. And so, you know, and then in, you know, I think sort of the situation is a little bit different in, let's say, restaurants and nursing homes. Wages for hourly workers do have to go up in those places, but the savings in terms of not having to hire temporary workers, you know, not, ha- you know, dramatic reductions in turnout, improvements in quality of service end up actually making these programs economically viable. Mm. Uh, not to mention the fact that you know it draw, that it plays you know it has a huge benefit in terms of reducing burnout you know making possible let's say you know very creative head chefs who are reaching that point after you know 10 or 15 years of 70 hour weeks yeah. you know recognizing that I'm not going to be able to do this for that much longer and if I break down the whole restaurant goes away um you know, making it possible for them to have sustainable careers for a very long time. The final thing I would say is that if you think a crisis sounds like the wrong time to try something radical like this, actually, crises are exactly when companies have adopted four-day weeks. Mm. You know, leaders have faced burnout when they've had you know, huge recruitment issues, when you've got you know, competition moving in. It's big things like that that have made companies take the jump and go to a four-day week, not because they want to, you know, because it's some, you know, kind of left-wing, touchy-feely thing. It's a very smart, strategic business decision. And I think in an era when we've got to think about how we can return to work in a way that keeps people safe, that allows people to space out um, in formally crowded offices, and in the long run, how we can make organizations more resilient and flexible and creative Places that have moved to four-day weeks have been very effective at doing all of those. And, you know, the next phase of this pandemic, we're not at the end of the movie. We are at the end of the first season, and the villain is about to come back. Hmm. Um, you yeah. know, both in the short and the long run, it can serve as a really useful tool that will not only make people safer, but also improve people's lives, improve work-life balance, and help companies reopen faster, safer, and more sustainably. All right. Well, let me, at this point, go to uh, Yama, Yama and Adil. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on. You both are from Make the Road, New Jersey. I've got your um, flyer here, the Right to Refuse Work Caravan. So, Yama, you know, you are an essential worker. You have continued to work through the pandemic. What are you still facing now as more and more people are coming back? And why were you on the caravan yesterday? Well, thank you for calling me, uh, Uh, Esta situación uh, que nosotros hemos uh, vivido, eh, de verdad que ha sido un poco de... So, um, Adil, for the listeners who don't speak Spanish, can you help translate what Yama is saying? She's, it sounds like the, that there's still a lot of risk that people are, are facing uh, when they go to work. Right. That's right. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think, Bridget, I think you caught that. I think what Yami was just transitioning to was, you know, workers are taking a lot of risk. There's no security. And in particular, workers are taking on multiple jobs and duties in their workplace that's putting them more at risk. Uh, similar to what Richard was talking about a little earlier. But then 
you know, like Richard was saying, they don't have paid sick days or time off if you need to give care, paid time off, or, you know, saving for retirement or having access to health care. Alex, let me let me turn to you for, uh, you were talking about radical design, restructuring can happen in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm thinking of like the Black Plague, you know, that that, you know, so many people ended up tragically dying, you know, then all of a sudden labor became more, uh, you know, you could ask more for your labor and it sort of broke the chains of serfdom in many parts of Europe. Are we going to see something like that now? Or is this a time for a major major restructuring of the way we work across all sorts of systems? It is an opportunity for that. None of these, none of these futures are cast in stone. Arguably, the single biggest thing that this has revealed is the need to improve sort of the infrastructure for supporting people during times of economic disruption. You know, not only does you know has this exposed people to risks in very disparate and unfair ways but you know countries that were that offered better organized support at the beginning of the pandemic places like you know New Zealand and Denmark have also been able to come out of it a lot faster with a lot less disruption and mm. with fewer people getting sick and dying and mm. so i think that the you know in addition to sort of changing the way that we work and using this as an opportunity to you know, move back from you know, the ridiculousness of thinking of long hours as equivalent to you know, sort of high productivity in yeah. you know, virtually every job. We have a chance to address some of these structural issues at a time when it's really, really clear that we ought to do so. So let me play one last clip from Kendra, and then Manar, I'm going to ask you for your final thoughts. It really struck me about what she was saying in terms of what we're, what we're learning in the current situation that she hopes moves forward. I am so hopeful that this, this empathy we're seeing will continue once we go back, and it's almost like it forced people to understand what it's like to have other responsibilities outside of work commitments, whether it's elderly parents or kids or siblings or whatever it is that you're responsible for, that makes it a little bit more challenging to show up for a 7 a.m. meeting or, you know, to stay incredibly late at night and that not everyone, you know, is able to, to meet that kind of ideal worker norm. So, Manar, you know, could this be the end of the ideal worker norm, the the notion that the, the impossible standard that you put work before everything else and you're always available? I certainly think it has opened up a whole new conversation uh, in firms and in companies around this. I used to say my biggest competitor to flexibility was the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't about others doing this. It was about what was the challenge of how do we mentor? How do we know if somebody's really working, right? How do we under, you know, they need to be committed and all of those things that they couldn't just see. And now having the status quo completely flipped where everybody is working virtually and they're seeing it. I do think that it will, that the smart, that the innovative organizations and companies and firms will pivot and not go back, um, that they will look at how do we make these changes, not just on, on working from home and telecommuting, but on all sorts of flexibility. I do think it's given some greater empathy. I, I do think that that is correct because there's also men in leadership positions whose wives have been involved that I've talked to whose wives are involved in COVID research or other things where they've had to take on all yeah. of the childcare responsibility. And they keep saying, I had no idea. Like, and I am now having, I talked to one partner in a law firm 
four young kids and he leads a group and he was saying, you know, I have to do all the, the care and monitor all the schooling while I'm leading my group. And, and so I think that greater empathy for understanding how all of that works will translate in new initiatives and new policies being put into place. Well, thank you so much. I'd like to thank all of the panelists for being here today. I'd like to thank the participants as well. I love that thought. I hope that that empathy will expand not just to white collar workers, but also to workers like Richard and Yama, that we can really rethink the structures of work in general. Alex, Manar, Adil, Yama, and Richard, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Just to uh, Manar's last point, I hope you'll join us next week, where we will actually be talking about how men's roles are changing and Uh, shifting in the pandemic and whether that will also uh, last and lead to lasting changes. So in the meantime, I hope everyone stays healthy and safe, wash your hands, and we'll see you next week.